Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. Today we are speaking with Kim Hamer and we are talking about the grieving process and supporting employees through loss. This is a really important and powerful conversation. On April 16th, 2009, Kim watched her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. During his illness and after his death, she was amazed by the helpful ways their coworkers, bosses, friends, and family supported them. Kim started calling their kind actions acts of love. After the death of her husband, Kim, an HR leader, noticed how little guidance leaders received when navigating cancer, health crisis, or death on their team. She knew their lack of knowledge negatively affected morale, employee engagement, and productivity. She set out to change that, combining her personal experience with her professional knowledge and leadership skills. And she launched her business to support leaders and coworkers when cancer or any health crisis affects a team member. Kim is the author of A Hundred Acts of Love, a girlfriend's guide to loving your friend through cancer or loss, an easy to read book filled with a hundred practical, quick and effective ways to support a friend or a coworker. This is such a beautiful and powerful conversation as Kim really shares her story with us and how she navigated through the loss that her family experienced and what that looked like in her relationships, in the workplace. And then she took that experience combined with her own personal knowledge and experience and launched and really brought this out into the world because these are the kinds of conversations that we need to have more of. This book, 100 Acts of Love, I've included in the resources in the show notes. And one of the things that we dove into today was what not to say. This is inspired to support people, to help others through the grieving process, something that deserves so much more conversation. And I'm so grateful that Kim brings this to the show today. This is such a beautiful and powerful episode and topic that needs far more airtime and conversation. Welcome to the show today, Kim. I'm so blessed to have you here. Well, I am so very excited to be here. I listened, like I said, I listened to a few of your podcasts and I'm really, I love what you do. I love what you talk about. I love the spirit behind it. So very happy to be here. Oh, awesome. I, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that we're going to go into today. So first off, I'm going to receive that. I appreciate it. And I'm grateful that you're here to talk <laughs> about things that a lot of us don't talk about often. And I, I know you have, as always, we have a story that actually teaches us and leads us to where we are today. And it is really the story behind the work that you do. And I want to spend a big chunk of the time on the work that you do, because I think it's so powerful. And I think everybody's going to be able to learn something out of this episode. I do think we have to start with a little bit about who you are and your backstory. So um, my name is Kim Hamer and I, um, my story starts in the doctor's office with my husband. We had just been told that he has cancer and we had just been told, actually it was about a week ago. And then we just learned that we, that, that he wasn't going to be able to work. And instead of hearing the doctor talk about the treatment and everything else, I was in massive panic mode Mm -hmm. because we didn't have the savings for him to be out of work for 11 months. Mm -hmm. And that's what the doctor was saying, you know, six, seven, maybe 10, maybe 11 months. And and after he said that, I stopped listening. Um, And I'm, 
I'm, I was, you know, panicking and worried and thinking about what do we need to sell to make this work? And then two days afterwards, um, I hear my husband on the phone and he's on the phone with his boss and he's, I hear him say, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be, are you sure? Um, okay. I mean, that would be incredible. And he gets off the phone and he tells me that his boss has just informed him that they are going to pay his complete salary for the time that he is dealing with this cancer. Um, and it was unreal. So, um, you know, my husband's 44. I mean, sorry, my husband is 40 at the time. And we have three young children who were, I always forget the ages exactly what they were, but they were four. It's four, seven, and nine. Um, and we kind of muscle through this, this really difficult, it's stage four cancer. For those of you who don't know, there is no stage five. Stage four is the worst. It's metastasized. It's all in his lungs. It's trying to shut his lungs down. We get, he gets an incredible difficult treatment where he's being treated every other week. The camp, you know, and, and in the meantime, our community comes together. And I think it's so interesting that we don't realize we're parts of communities until something like this happens, mm-hmm. right? So our community comes together and they start doing these incredible things for us. They start picking up my kids for school. They start arranging rides for my husband. Of course, they're bringing meals, almost almost too many meals at sometimes. Um, you know, a, a, a light fixture wasn't working and a handyman showed up at my door to fix the light fixture. So, you know, my, my car would mysteriously kind of get gassed up. And um, it was amazing all these little things that people did. My husband got better and we kind of went along our lives trying to put the pieces back together because it's something I really want people to know is after cancer is over and you don't come back with this. Oh my gosh, my life is so great. And I'm going to, you know, grab it by the horns and just run with it. There is a lot of shock. I remember there were so many nights, my husband and I would lie in bed and we'd look at each other and we go, what the heck just happened? Like, well, you're, I, I, if I can just put one tiny pause there for a second, he's sure. 40 when he's like, like just for everybody, please put into context. Like that's not what you, you plan on dealing. Not that you yeah. ever plan on it, but three young kids. And like, so that's a whirlwind. And yes. now you've come to the other side of it. And now it's like, did that actually happen? And right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. What the heck just happened? And, you know, like any good, difficult situation, it puts pressure on your marriage and it's, it brings up the best things about your marriage and it brings up the worst things about your marriage. So we were having to navigate that. He was still doing was dealing with side effects from chemo. Um, one of them being neuropathy, which was affecting the way he walked and he didn't have feeling, he didn't have full feeling in his fingers. Um, so we're, we're kind of putting our lives back together and we start to do it. He starts to be, he was an athlete before he starts going back to being to running and he does his first triathlon and then the cancer comes back. And four months after time in between, sorry? it was just less than two, little less than two years okay, later, so less than two years. So you yep. kind of just felt like you were just getting your life back exactly. to like enough. Time. Yeah, wow. exactly. We felt like we were just kind of getting back over this hump. We actually decided we really liked each other still. Um, we liked our children, you know, it was yep. just, we're getting our lives back together. And, um, four months after the cancer came back, he died. Wow. And, um, he was 44 at the time and our kids were 12, nine and seven. Oh. And I think the, you know, the, it was heartbreaking. It was really difficult. Um, I'm sure you're, you know, people say they can't imagine, but we all can. Yes, you can imagine can. what it's like to lose a favorite person. It doesn't even have to be a partner or a spouse and be just your favorite person. Um, and I, you know, I married purposely a, someone who was very much a co-parent with me. So I had planned on co-parenting with this person, um, for the rest of my life. And then all of a sudden he's gone. So I find myself not only just having to parent, but also having to change the light bulb outside the front stoop with the sticky spider webs, the yucky stuff and taking care of the car and making sure certain bills were paid and, you know, doing all the things that he used to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I discovered during both times when he was sick and after he died was that some people knew exactly what to do and some people didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I make the joke that if one in three of us are going to get cancer, 
the other two need to know how to help and support. Oh my gosh. Can I just, that is just such a powerful statement. Like I never, I guess I never looked at it that way before. I, yeah, like, okay, sorry, go ahead. You just caught me off guard. Yeah, no, no, it's, 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 it, yeah, it's, it's one of those things like we need to think about. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of books out there for you. If you have cancer, there's a lot of books pre, during and post, but there, there wasn't at the time a book out there to support friends and coworkers who of those who have cancer. Mm-hmm. And so I set out to write that. So I wrote a book called 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer and Loss. And when we get a quick little break, I'll grab the copy of it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it with the idea of two things. One, I am not, I don't like reading a ton of books where I have to read 75 paragraphs before I get to the point. No. So the book is designed so that you can open it and be like, what do I do? Oh, offer to buy her gas. Got it. And go and do it. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing. And the second thing I wanted people to understand that helping doesn't mean buying groceries for then every week for the next six months. It's not some of, some people have this idea that you have to get in there and really get in there and help, but it's not, it is this, it is, you know, I'm literally here, not because I'm super strong or courageous or like, you know, manage to get through this. I am here because of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little things that people did for us. And so I really wanted the readers to know you don't have to, you know, do the grocery shopping for five months. Just simply call them up next time you're at the grocery store and say, what five things are you almost out of? And then drop them off, right? It's really very simple and extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. So I wrote the book and then went back to work in HR and I noticed something that not only do people outside of the business world not know what to do, but people inside the business world don't know what to do. And here's something that's really interesting. 46% of those who are diagnosed with cancer Mm -hmm. are between the ages of 25 and 64 prime working years. Wow. And so it blew me away. You know, HR teams don't know what to say other than here's your insurance and good luck. You know, managers don't know how to manage, you know, employees. And in between the time of my husband's death and now more and more employees are being diagnosed with cancer and working. My husband wasn't working. He wasn't able to work. But so you have people in the workforce who are being treated for cancer, having to take off a few hours a day or the week, whatever it is, but they're being treated for cancer in the the workforce. And there's not a lot of conversation happening around that. So I set out to help HR teams and managers support employees with cancer as well as themselves and their teams. Because the one thing we all know, especially after COVID, is that employee engagement is really, really important. And it makes a huge difference in your bottom line. Like, like, let's just talk business straight for a second. It makes a huge difference in your bottom line, how much money your organization makes. And when you're talking at a, at a micro level, it makes a huge difference in how well your your employees perform. Mm -hmm. And when an employee has cancer, your productivity will go down unless you do something about it. So now I work with managers and HR teams showing them how to make some easy, sometimes small adjustments to really increase productivity and increase that community and the connection that we're all craving for, especially at work. Wow. Thank you so much for all of that. And for sharing, like for just sharing your experience and your story with us, because you're right. Everybody can understand in some way, shape or form. We might not want to, but we can, but we can in some level. And so when I look at like, is this primarily the work that you are doing now? Like how it's led you into, okay. So you're working Wow. And yeah, so I I currently work as an HR consultant and part of my work right now is, you know, I would like, this will eventually be full-time, but part of my work right now is doing trainings, one day trainings, doing, uh, you know, month long kind of assessments, you know, 30 to 60 day programs within the organization Mm -hmm. and do it for you. So I come into an organization that has an employee who is dealing with cancer and everyone's like, oh, 
And I come in and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And we go through assessments. We go through communication plans, work plans. We talk about team. We talk about teams. We talk about what, you know, how to support, when to support, what not to say, what to say. Um, So we cover everything so that the team is really set up for success, even though they have an employee who is really struggling at the moment. That is incredible. Have you found that most companies that you connect with to work with are they're very open to this? They're saying, yes, we need, we need to do something with this. Or have you like, has it been a very organic growth or what does that look like for you? It's been organic. And usually what happens is someone will say, oh my gosh, you need to call Kim. Mm -hmm. And they call me and they say, I don't really need that much help. I just need this. Mm -hmm. And then through 15 minute conversation, they go, Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. And we didn't ask that question. And Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, so it's one of those things that it's, it's an interesting cocktail conversation. Cause when I talk about what I do, people are like, oh, that's really great. So John, how about that sports team? Right? (laughs) Because it, (laughs) people don't want to talk about it. Like they don't, Mm -hmm. right. This is part of what I want. They want to say they're talking about it and they're open about it but people don't actually want to have the conversations about it. Right. Exactly. Okay. Is that Yeah, I I think that's it and I also think they just don't think about the ramifications of it. They, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're just not thinking about how this affects your communication with your team. How this affects your reputation as a manager. Mm-hmm. Right? They're not thinking about those things. They're thinking they're thinking about the employee with cancer, which is great. But then they're thinking only about like, you know, what normally happens is a manager will say to an employee, okay, anything you need, let me know. And that's actually the least helpful thing you can say. Can you and, explain why? Like, can you explain? Yes. And people do this all the time. I, I, I yes. completely, yes, but explain why. Yes. So there are three main reasons. One, what is anything? Mm-hmm. I think about it. When you say anything, I had a toddler. Were you willing to take the car you just had detailed up to the preschool to pick up my vomiting toddler? Or did you mean that you were happy to run out and get a gallon of milk? For my friend who has a dying mother, did you mean that you'd sit and read to a person who is dying? Or did you mean that you'd come over and uh, cheer her up with some, you know, chick flick, right? So what exactly is anything? It's too big a word. And even though most of us in the moment mean anything, when we back away from that statement and go about our day, we have limits about what we're willing to do. Mm-hmm. Right? We just, we yeah. just all do. And those limits are to be honored and there's nothing wrong with you for having those limits. So that's the first reason. The second thing is when you say anything, you are asking the person who is already under a great amount of duress to take apart their day and to find one chunk of something that you might be able to do. I had, I mean, I had toddler and a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old the first time around, right? I mean, there were so many things that I went through doing in my day that were normal things that I would do. I couldn't even list them out. You know, it's almost like someone asking you, what did you eat for breakfast yesterday? You're kind of like, um, um, hold on, just give me a second, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. come naturally. So now you're asking this person to break down their day to find the one thing that you that you might be willing to do. Yes. And it's also hard because don't like people, I just did a, an episode on this, but people have a really hard time receiving. So like, if you're asking somebody, what do they need? You know, you, as that person can be thinking, God, I could really use some extra groceries. I could really use someone to cut my grass, but who am I to ask them to do that? And are they going to do that? What are they going to think of me? Oh, never mind. I'll and, they're, do it myself. and they're already, and they're already really busy. And I don't want to add any more, like there's a lot of impo- like sort of quote unquote imposter syndrome. They're already busy. I don't want to, I don't want to bug them. You know, I, I'm not worth it. Right. So there's that piece. Yeah. Absolutely. And we can talk about, there's another side of this called receiver's guilt, which is a thing. And it keeps people from receiving the help that's being offered. And that happens a lot at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third reason, let's just say, that the person figures out that one thing and remembers that you offered because you are not the only person who has offered them this to them in their community. So they remember that you offered. They then have to gather all their courage and they're feeling terrified. Their life has just been, is like tilted on some weird angle. Mm-hmm. And now, you, now, now you're asking them to come to you to ask you to do something that they may, that they may not want to do, that you may not want to do. It's too terrifying. 
And honestly, let me just throw the kids in the minivan and run down the store and get pasta. I'll leave them in the car. If someone calls the cops, I'll have to explain because it's fat. You know, I'll just run in the store really quick, grab what I need and come back out. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what it is. It just feels easier than to let myself be extremely vulnerable and risk two things. One, you saying no, or worse, you going, okay, um, do you need this right now? Like, right. That, that, that hesitancy, because, because maybe, you know, the person I just asked is in the middle of something and they, and they know, and now they feel obligated. Mm-hmm. I do not want you to feel obligated to help me. That's the worst feeling in the world. So those are the three main reasons that the, that it's just the least helpful thing you can say. I will say this, there is one thing worse you can do, and that is not say anything at all. Mm-hmm. When you ignore what someone is going through, I mean, if we all go back to like, if we come home from work and we have a stressful day and we want to talk, and if you have, you know, and if you're in a male female relationship or, or, you know, you come home and you want an event and you know, this typical story is the woman wants a vent and the man wants to fix it, or the more masculine person wants to fix it. So you come home, you want a vent and you just want a vent and the masculine person wants to fix it and you don't feel heard. Mm-hmm. Or is vice versa, the, the person, the, the, the more masculine leaning person comes home and just wants to talk about it and doesn't want to fix it or wants to go in his man cave and do whatever they do in the man person cave, the they cave. I'm trying to be. Yes. Um, gender. Yes, yes. I understand. Gender, gender, gender neutral. Yep. Um, you know, you have to give them it just it doesn't make people feel heard. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Right. When someone we care about is dealing with a hardship, it hurts us because we care about them. And we want to just do something that's going to make their lives a little bit easier. And by not speaking to them, by not even saying, I'm so sorry, this is happening to you. Mm -hmm. You're basically saying to them, you don't matter. Mm -hmm. I can't get past my own discomfort to deal for five seconds, for the minute, for the five second phrase and the 30 second conversation that happens after that. I can't, I'm too terrified to get past that. Mm-hmm. And that's what the book and that's what I do is all about is teaching people to, yeah, the fear is real. I mean, it's really uncomfortable because honestly, we want to get in there and fix it. I mean, I want to get in there and just make it better. And I want to make sure the meals are done and, da, 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 and talk to the doctors and tell them, to, you know, I want to get in there and make it right. Yeah. And I can't, even, even if I could, I don't have the scientific knowledge to fix the cancer. And so we find, we find ourselves in this middle space that's really hard to be in. Mm-hmm. And that is, we can't solve the problem. We can't fix it. And so sometimes when we get in that space, we discount our own personal ability to be supportive and kind and loving and how much that means. And I'm telling you from my own experience, it means a great deal. You know, my husband was blown away by, you know, we had lived all over the country and people from all over the country kept showing up on our doorstep and they were paying him back. They were saying, you matter to us. You matter to us. Even 10 years ago, you matter to us. And we want to show up and help you right now. And right now, this is the only thing we can think to do. So we're here. That's amazing. I'm, pardon me. I'm glad that you had, it's, I love the story where you had people come from all over in different places there to support you. Like that is just, it's, it's so beautiful. Were you um, ever in a space where you were surprised by who showed up and surprised by who didn't? Yes, no I, love, I just want to just want no, to no, it's it is it is a great question. I'm great. You, I'm glad, grateful you brought it up because yes, what happens to a lot of people is when the person's in crisis, some of their their friends, there's usually one or two friends they expect are going to step in and be really supportive, and they actually back out. Yeah. And then one or two people who are like on the periphery, you know, they're acquaintances, they're people you know at work. You pass by, you have a couple jokes, and you go, you know, who who just come in and show up. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it took me a long time. The reason it took me a long time to write the book after my husband died, I had it in my head because I was pissed. Honest to goodness. I had to get through a lot of resentment and come to a place of deep and understanding and loving care. And I realized that, you know what, guess who had also ghosted people in the past who were sick myself. I was just going to ask you if that, and, and, and how, if you recognize that and how you got to the space 
of recognizing it, right? And letting go of being angry and pissed at them. Yeah. And that just takes understanding. You know, my husband was young when he died. That's really scary. And for our friends, you know, we were like this organic eating, really healthy lifestyle couple. You know, we, we were exercised every, every day we took turns. Like we had a system where he would go out early and I would get up and get the kids ready and he would get back and then I would go work out. And then by the time I came back, he'd be out the door to work and, but the kids would be, you know, ready for, to be dropped off at school. So we had us, we had this, you know, we ate organic, we were, you know, yeah. And, and it scared our friends. It honestly scared our friends because when you look at, we look at this family who's healthy, that can happen to us. Right. I mean, people it's, don't want to go there. Like they don't no. want to, and I, and I, I don't have any, I get that. I, I get why you don't want to mm-hmm. go there, but that's it. That was something that we kept experiencing was that because our story was so scary for people and yes. they're like what you would consider air quote, normal family like how can this happen? If that can happen to them, they must have done something to cause that. So it's easier to just stay away. Exactly. Exactly. And you'll see the same thing in the cancer world. What people do is like, you know, I always say there's lung cancer. Did he smoke? Like we're we're constantly, did he, did you eat red meat? Did you, are you around chemicals? Like there was a lot of questions that people asked and it wasn't because they were curious. It was because they were curious, but it usually comes from a place of wanting to distance themselves and say, it's not going to happen to me. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's, 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 and so that, that's how I got there. I mean, I understood finally that, yeah, when you don't know what to say, when you don't feel like you have the tools and when you feel like you don't matter, when you feel like there's nothing you can say, that'll make a difference. Mm-hmm. Then sometimes it does feel like being silent and ignoring it, um, is the best option. But what I found for myself, especially doing the work that I do is I've had to kind of deal with my own shame of having left people. Right. So this doesn't come out of one of the first steps I have um, managers do is I have them do an exercise where I ask them to write how they're feeling. Like I'm so pissed at so-and-so for having cancer because, and it sounds like a third grade exercise, but it's really powerful because they first start out with, well, I'm not really mad at them. Well, now I'm mad at them because they're messing up this project. Well, now I'm mad at them because they're a key Pete person. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this project. And now I'm mad at them because they're they're not doing, they're not, their inability to do the project is going to make me look bad. Like they have to get, you have to get through all those emotions mm-hmm. and walk through them and get really clear and honest about them. There's no bad thing. They're just emotions. They're just feelings. They're not truths. No, they're not. That's such a beautiful thing. Thank you for saying that. Because as soon as you start to get down in those layers, like you could easily just call it shame. But once you start to peel back each of the layers of the onion, it's like, oh my gosh, all of these reasons and no judgment on ourselves, but you start to recognize, oh my God, I didn't even know I was thinking that like, that's not actually how I feel, but you're helping them get to the root of their emotions so that they can clear that and move on. Exactly. And that's the thing. Once it's cleared, Right. Once they have it out on paper, mm-hmm. I think most time people are afraid, at least in my experience, people are afraid to write it out because it makes it feel more permanent, but it's way more dangerous in your head. Like it's just, oh, it's not our friend. I say this all no, the time. No, exactly. Our head is not our friend. Exactly. I always say, I, I treat, I treat my mind like an unsafe neighborhood. I try never to go in there alone. You know, <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Because honestly, what goes on in here is not a good thing. And the thing is, my friend sounds just like me and makes a lot of sense, Mm -hmm. right? So, so, so it's really important to get it out because once it's out on paper, it it releases its power over you. Yeah, I think people are afraid to get it out because who wants to admit that they're mad at their employee or their friend who has cancer because now they're going to get all the attention, right? Nobody wants to admit that, but when you don't admit it. It leaks out of you in the way that you talk to and work with the, the employer or your friend. And so it is so much better to get it out and put it on paper so that it doesn't leak because there's no, like, there's no burying it. It comes out in these weird sentences and weird ways and even weirder thoughts. Um, so that's the first thing I do is I have them kind of write about it. And I also have them write about their own experience with cancer because if their mom just died of cancer two years ago, or their best friend died of cancer at 17, they, they're really afraid of the feelings that come up with that. You know, if, if you had a friend who died at 17 from cancer and now you're, you know, your favorite employee, you're not supposed to have favorites, but we all have favorites, yeah. um, is now diagnosed with cancer. It's heart wrenching. It hurts. It's scary. And so sometimes I tell you need to go home and just have a good cry. 
Like write about that, pull out the pictures of the person, have a good cry, like let it go. Um, Because again, it's about clearing so that you can really be the best person you can be when you're supporting them. Wow. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, you just, you're really normalizing a lot of the emotions and experiences that people are going through and helping them to, you know, take these labels off of them and recognize like how we are processing things. And then as a result, how can we help others? Because if you did go through this with a friend at 17, or you do have a a coworker or an employee, sadly, you're going to be experiencing this again at some point. Like we're yes. all, this is not a, this is not a one-time thing. We're all going no. to be experiencing it in some way, shape or form with a friend, a family member, ourselves. And so I think the work that just makes the work that you do so much more powerful. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Very passionate about it. That's for sure. That's well. And obviously all of your experience has led you here. This is the big, this is the big, yes. right. All of yes, your- absolutely. Yeah. So when it comes to, I want to talk about, like, that's how you start with them in the workplace. And Mm -hmm. then what are some of the other things that, that you do specifically with them in the workplace to help them with their employees? So the next thing we do is we start with phrases, what to say, right? And this kind of encompasses a lot of things. Um, Most of the time when I get in contact with a client calls me, they've already, they've either already spoken to the employee with cancer once or they've had several conversations with them. So I talk to them about like, well, tell me what you said so that we can either, they can either have an opportunity to rephrase it, to go back to the employee with cancer and say, I'm so sorry. This is what I meant to say. This is, this is, this is where it came from. Not an excuse, but just kind of the employee needs to, right now. The employee's vision is this, right? Mm-hmm. I have cancer. I need to keep working. I'm terrified out of my mind because I don't do anything about this. I'm going to die. So that's what the employee is seeing. And so when, when a manager says something that's not helpful, the employee's like, hello, I'm about to die. How dare you? So they can kind of go off on this kind of, they don't understand, they're mean, they, you know, they're jerks, whatever. So you might have to, they might have to go back and have another conversation and say, this is where I was coming from. I too am scared. Mm-hmm. I am too. And I am terrified for you. I have cancer diagnosis in my background and not that it affects anything about you, but it brought up a lot of feelings for me. And I want to make sure that I'm here for you. Right. So that's, so that's the first thing. Um, so we talk about phrases and with that, I talk, you know, I train managers, I'll train teams. Um, I have conversations with the employee about like, what, what, what works for you? Because, um, we had one employee who said, you know, (laughs) she was very, she was very clear. She says, I do not want anyone coming up to me and going, Oh, poor you. Are you okay? How are you today? Like, she was like, no, I get that. It, it's, it's, it's a total no thing. You should never do this to anyone dealing with cancer. But then we, I asked her, are you okay? If someone comes up to you and says, how are you doing right now? And she said, I cannot believe that those two words at the end of the sentence change the way I feel about that phrase. Right. Right now. Because you're, so you're not just how right are you now. doing right now. Right. Okay. How are you doing right now? And no arm touching. No, 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 no big puppy eyes. Just like, you know, I was thinking about you. How are you doing right now? Mm-hmm. So we have conversations with the whole, with everybody to better understand what is okay to say, what is off limits to say, um, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and then the next thing is we start to go into work planning and discussing, you know, there, there's a lot of things to be cancerers. There are a hundred and I think there's 111 different, I think I'm low. I think it's 200 different kinds of cancers right now. And they're not all treated the same. No. Right. Some are operations, some are operations and radiation, some are operations, radiation and immunotherapy, some are chemo and radiation, some are chemo and immunotherapies, you know, right. So there's so many different combinations and there's so many different kinds of drugs out there. So how, what the treatment options are is a really important information for the employee to know, and then to share with their, with their manager. Something I do want to say, United States and HR, we're very clear about what you, what you can talk about and what you 
cannot talk about, right? So we go over some legal stuff with the managers and the team. Like the employee can say, hey, everyone, I have cancer, but I don't want you to talk about it to everyone else. And they are not allowed to talk about it with everyone else. The employee may decide they want to hold their cards really close to the chest and may not even want to tell anybody about, you know, above the manager. And so then we have to have a different conversation of how do you talk to the team about an illness that you can't talk about? Right. And the other thing is the employee does not have to reveal, they don't have to reveal that they're sick, but they don't have to reveal I'm having chemo on Thursday and radiation on Friday. Like that information is not necessary. What is helpful to the workforce and to your manager is to just say, I'm having treatment for something and I will not be available from Thursday at one o'clock until Monday morning. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's that information. We, of course, go over the legal stuff, you know, FMLA, if disability, if you have it, or state disability, if your state has it. So we cover all those kind of basic legal questions. Um, and then, like I said, we get into the nitty gritty. So we start to talk about uh, work plans, which is something that a lot of managers don't even think about. But if you have an employee who's going to need Thursday afternoon through Friday off, and you still have to get work done and be productive and meet your KPIs, then you have to come up with a work plan of what the employee can do. And something I've seen managers do is they, what they do is they, they think they're doing the employee a favor and they remove all of the favorite projects off the plate, right? So the employee is left with the projects that they hate the most that are the most boring. And what that does, what the message is very clear one, you're incapable of doing it, even though that's not what they mean by saying it. Yeah. Two, the message to the team, especially if the if, if the team has the information that the employee is cancer, is do not tell them that you are sick because you'll lose all your favorite projects, right? Mm-hmm. So the message unintentional is actually negative when you're trying to help. So I really stress to managers to have really clear conversations about what has to get done by when, and then to decide what together with the employee, what they are capable of doing, what they think they're capable of doing and what they need to take off their plate. And these conversations need to happen at regular intervals because your employee not on chemo is going to be very different than your employee who's on their fifth round of chemo, depending on the chemo. Mm -hmm. My husband, we, he would clear up, he'd get chemo um, day, day one and two, he'd be fine. Day three, the chemo would start to take effect day six through eight, seven, eight, nine were just really bad for him. He was spaced. He couldn't remember things, was sleeping all the time, no energy. And then day nine, he'd start to come back day 10, we'd get to day 14 and start over again. So, you know, he, he couldn't work, but there are people, you know, there are chemo regimens that will knock you out for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or if you're having surgery, probably not going to be able to work for a week or two, depending on the surgery. Right. But it's really important that the manager have these really clear, honest conversations with the employee with cancer, um, because nothing will destroy a team faster than having assumptions, right? And what's the, what's the the joke about assumptions? It makes an ass out of you, M E, right? When we assume, yeah. So, a lot of people assume a lot of things about cancer. We have our own histories, or we get our histories from TV, from social media of what it means to have cancer, and we go on those assumptions without checking in on what those assumptions are. And that's a very dangerous place for a manager to be, because when that employee comes back to work or comes back to work full time, they may not walk right away, but they're going to walk in a year. And not only that, you're also the team is watching. And I always really mention this a lot: the team is watching you. They're watching your actions. They're watching the way you talk to them. They're watching the way you talk when they're not in the room. So they are watching you carefully. And if they don't like what they see, if they think that you are not being compassionate enough and warm enough, then they guess who else is going to start walking or who's going to start, whose productivity is going to start going down because they don't trust you. They don't like you. They don't think you're, they don't think you're doing it right. Um, what a great um, explanation. Thank you for sharing that because I think it, it does, it can put more pressure on the employer I understand, of course, but now you're showing them and understanding that people are watching, people are seeing what you're doing and how you're carrying yourself, right? Like that is so, that's so important. When you're in this space, this next piece, which nobody wants to go through, but how to better manage death in the workplace if it's a coworker. That's a really, that's a really tough one. I, I wish, and it's funny, I haven't called 
my husband's old boss and asked him how he handled this. Hmm. Um, because I did call him and let him know that the fight was over. Mm-hmm. And I know that he came to the room, to the hospital room to say goodbye. Wow. Um, I wasn't there at the time. And so I don't, um, one of the things that I stress is go at it honestly. You know, I think that there's, you know, post COVID, we are now used to seeing people's kids and cats and dogs and, you know, all the stuff that goes on in the background. And um, so it has opened up our lives to more feelings. But I also think what happens is as we were returning and some people are still remote, um, but some people are back in the office three days a week and some people are back in the office full time. That physical space creates a physical barrier, right? Because we're used to kind of having this emotional life at home, but then we go back to the office where we're not used to having this emotional life. And it, and so there's that, there's that physical mem- mental memory. Mm-hmm. So we become sort of hard, not hard, but disengaged um, from our own emotions at work if you have to go into a workspace. Um, but the thing is, death, y'all, death sucks. You know, I mean, like, I, I you know, I, one manager said to me, what do I say? And I said, he was, death sucks. And I'm like, you can say that. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a great opportunity to, to not be manipulative about it, but to show how it affects you. Oh, right. I mean, so your employee just died and maybe they haven't been in the work for working with you for six months, or maybe they were just here three days ago and you are distraught. Mm-hmm. This is not the time to have the answers. It is the time to say, we are all broken up about this. I am so sorry to have to tell you, I'm going to cry. Like, you know, you can announce yeah. that you're going to cry. You can cry during the announcement and just say right now, I just want to let you all know, we will let you know about funeral services and all this other stuff a little bit later, but, you know, take the time to grieve. And for some of you, and also, you know, caution the grieving for some people, grieving means diving right back into work and then crying all the way home on the drive and circling the block several times so you can get your act together. Right. For some people, grieving means sitting at their desk and crying right away. For some people, it means going for a walk. Some people, it means talking to each other. So allowing that for allowing whatever it means for people in the workforce, something I caution against is a lot of people, a lot of companies will bring in grief counselors and I love grief counselors. They are great. I don't think that their proper place is in the beginning. I think that if you really want to bring in a grief counselor, you bring them in for several weeks for several hours on a certain day, right? So that people get used to the idea of coming and going into it. Like, because grief, as we all know, does not work on a time schedule, unfortunately. So you could be four weeks out after this person died. You could have attended their funeral. You could have sent flowers and done everything else. You walk by the bathroom where you two used to joke and you're going to burst out crying. Yeah. It just, it just is mm-hmm. right. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is find a way to honor the lost employee. I had one company who kept um, the, the manager had this person's computer, you know, picked it up. And what they did for a month is every time they had a meeting, they included this person, but it was black screen. So it was a really, so it was a square, you know, like, you know, how the, the, we yeah. have the zoom squares, it was a zoom square, but there was always a black square. I mean, what an incredible way to not only honor the person who's gone, but to say to the team, we still like, they're still here Mm -hmm. and it's okay to talk about, you know, and it didn't, didn't always go over well. Sometimes people are like, you know, can we take this down? It's been two weeks. It's too, you know, it makes me upset, but that provides that opens up a conversation. And that's when the grief counselor can come in handy because it's three weeks later and the grief counselor shows up on Wednesdays between 10 and two. And so that, you know, this person can go see them. Right. So it's, it's, it's really finding ways as a company to honor them. I have suggested to companies that they hold their own memorial service because when you go to the memorial service of the person, it's with their family and friends, and it can feel weird to stand in the memorial service and to cry. But when you're in the memorial service at, a, at an organization, totally 100% optional, right? You give people an opportunity to remember and to laugh and to cry and to show their feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's a way of member better out than in. I love the Shrek, 
Oui, je suis sûr qu'on sait que c'est pas When he when he farts in the in the in the mud puddle in the mud, mud pool, better out than in. I always say. Well, it's, he's right. Yeah, he's he so is. right. It's better out than in. So better that you, as an organization, honor the person. And really, honestly, you're not honoring the person. Memorial services are for those of us who are still alive who miss them. And so you know, you you know, you want to honor everybody in there and and the way that they may be feeling lost. So that's something I recognize. And there's so many things. I mean, the office clean out or the office pick up their stuff from home. That's mm-hmm. another one. So we have a lot of conversations. We go into depth. You know, I kind of again do an assessment, really understand where they're at right now, and then from there, you know, we can go into okay, have you communicated with the family? Have you done this? Have you you know? So we can. I can ask all those questions. And then from there, we can decide what to do and how to move forward. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. I just think of what a difference this is making in the workplace. Again, about a topic that people don't want to always talk about, but affects and impacts all of us. And you're yeah. showing and helping them to see different ways of dealing with grief. And if we can start to normalize that, yes, everybody's grieving process looks different and we all experiencing we all experience it differently that's okay we're human i i want to take that into a question about you personally and what was your what was your grieving process like just if there's anything you can share to normalize mm-hmm. because i just want to paint a picture for a second you're an incredible speaker you're an author you're doing so many you're doing so many powerful things about normalizing grief and you have a person who might be listening to this episode right now and they say okay i couldn't even imagine putting two words together and look at yeah. what she's doing now so i just yeah. i just want to we don't stay there i just want to ask you if you can share any snippet of that time and that early in your grief journey so that people can see that this has been a process to get to here I mean, you know, I first I want to put this in perspective. I am coming up on four, April will be 14 years mm-hmm. since my husband died. And at that point, and this is going to make me cry, he will have been dead longer than we were married. Wow. And so that's that's a milestone for me. Um, mm-hmm. like this kind of little miles, big milestone. Um, the you know, it's funny when I, I have this camp widow. If you're a widow out there and you are, you can be a 18 year old widow or a 70 year old widow, please look up campwidow.com or.org. Um, it is an incredible widow community. And she holds these physical camps where you're with widows. And there's something really powerful about, you know, it's sort of like why we all go to support groups or go to, you know, when you're all together in, in a specific thing in it, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, it's very powerful. So one thing that we often say is, God, how do we, like, we look at sometimes women who are just widowed six months, seven months out. And we think, how do we get from there to here? Mm -hmm. And the one thing I can tell you is I remember in the very beginning being like that waking up, putting my feet on the ground and going, okay, what do you need to do next? Mm -hmm. And be like, okay, I need to go pee. All right. You peed. Now what? I don't know. Oh, look, there's your toothbrush. Maybe you should think about brushing your teeth. Sounds good to me. And it really is a process of putting one pinky toe in front of the other. And some days it's like a foot backwards. Some days you feel like you lose it uh, at everything that you gained. Um, I do remember being at one month and like, okay, I'm okay. And then being at three months and looking back at where I was at one month and laughing at how not okay I was. Um, I remember driving a couple of days after my husband died and thinking I should probably not be behind the wheel of a car right now. Yeah. It feels like you're on some kind of drug. Yeah. It really does. It's, you just feel so out of your mind. Um, it is a lot of crying, a lot of embarrassing crying, a lot of crying by myself, a lot of crying with my friends. Um, it is, you know, I did a lot of crumbling in front of the kids. Um, something Art and I were, you know, can I tell this really quick story? Yes, of course. We're, so, so Art and I were trying to be correct parents. You know, we were very, very full of ourselves when we were parents, young parents. We became less full as, we, as the kids yeah. got older. Um, and so we were, we were going to teach our children proper words for body parts. And so we did. 
And then one day I get in the elevator with my youngest son, with my oldest son, who's three at the time. And he looks at everyone in the elevator and he goes, oh, so he has a penis. He has a penis. <laughs> God bless little ones, eh? Seriously? <laughs> like, oh my God. Yep, that's We're right, honey. Like, but we that's our inside voice. We don't actually do this exactly, out loud. Exactly, exactly. Everybody knows what they have, so you don't need to point it out. <laughs> so, so when... You know, we told the kids that Art was dying and I brought them in to see him. He was in the hospital at the time. And um, that was probably the hardest. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm sure. Was to watch my children grieve and they all did it very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And during that time, I remember saying that I don't know how I'm going to grieve, but I don't want to hide it from the children. Um, But it was really scary because... I would be a puddle on the floor. Sometimes they'd come into a room and I'd just be like in my bed, rolled up in a ball, sobbing. And they wouldn't know what to do. And I wouldn't want them to be scared. And I realized it was sort of like a sort of like a long-term plan. Because what they see now, what they remember is that feeling of watching their mother miss their father. But now they see their mother who's missed their father and is doing all these things. But it's a long, like there's 13 years in between that. Um, I think the other thing I did, especially early on was I needed to be with other people who were like, who were going through it with me. Right. So even though I wasn't, it was really interesting. I joined a widow group and I called them the day after my husband died. I was like, I'm in, I'm in. And they were like, no, you need to wait because you're still in crisis mode. So they made me wait. I think it was two months because they recognized that if I got into a room with other grieving widows, I literally wouldn't be able to function right? There's just so much sadness. You can handle only your sadness. And then I'm handing the sadness of all these other people. So I waited, I think it was two or three months before um, I was allowed to get into a widowed group. So I think that's really important. It's even if you don't talk, there's something really powerful about being in the room with people who are experiencing something very similar to you. Um, And, and I, you know, there were people in there who barely shared just, you know, didn't really talk that much in the beginning, Uh, but they stayed and we were together for almost two years. Um, So I think that those are the things, but I love to say that it's, oh, here are the five steps you need to do to go through grieving. Y'all, there are no five steps, you know, and, and just uh, about two months ago, my husband used to see fire engines and think, go get them. I used to see fire engines and they go, no, someone's in trouble. And so I, you know, after he died, I kind of took on his attitude, like, go get them guys, go get them. And two months ago, so before I, yeah, two months ago, I heard a fire truck go by and I thought, go get him. And I burst out crying. Right. Because it just reminded me of him. I have said, go get him to, I can't tell you countless. I live in LA countless fire trucks go by. Like I hear them all the time, but that one time it just got me. So I think the thing too, is just, it's never really over. I don't expect it. I don't expect myself to stop hurting from his loss until my last breath. I mean, honestly, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't, I probably won't have as good memories of him 50 years from now. Um, but that kind of loss is, it's, it's sort of like, I've, I've learned to accept it. Um, and then the last thing about the kids, it was really hard to watch them. And the thing that I learned early on from someone said, kids grieve very differently than parents. Like when you heard, or when your, when your uh, listeners heard that my husband died when they were young in our heads, in our adult heads, we were already thinking high school, college graduations, possibly grad school, weddings, births, right? We're thinking that. So that loss feels very big to us. When kids are little, they don't realize those are going to be big losses. No. And so they they don't, they don't, I did, you know, when you're seven, you're not thinking about high school graduation. Right. And so often what happens is they go through loss again, like it's just happened when they get to these milestones. So sometimes, you know, we as adults, so many, so much you can do to help children who are grieving. And one of them is to just kind of check in with them on those, on those big dates. Um, because it can be very devastating until they get to the age where they realize, oh, 
when this happens, my dad's not, it's a big milestone and my parents, my dad won't be there. And when this, so until they get to that age, um, but yeah, y'all it's, it's, it's a process. It's, um, there's no magic bullet and it's, um, really heart wrenching. And there are going to moments you feel like you're not going to be able to make it. And then you do, mm-hmm. you yeah. just kind of do. Thank you for everything that you've shared. Like I honestly, it just, I appreciate how much you shared and how much you vulnerably shared with us, because mm-hmm. I think that when we get into these positions, it's so easy to go pick up the book on grieving and go, okay, go do these five steps by six months. This is what it should look like by two years. It should look like this. And I remember when I mentioned my girlfriend, when we first started and I just, we said, like, put the book down put the book down because every time you're doing, you're looking at it and you're saying, but I'm not there yet. And I'm like, that is a book written by somebody. It might not even be written by somebody who's been grieving. Yeah. Who knows? And so I think this normalizing that the grief is always with us in some way, shape or form and how we handle it, how it affects us can change every day. So I appreciate you sharing everything that you've done and for just continuing to open up this conversation that isn't an easy one to have, but somebody has got to do this. And this is exactly the work that you're doing. So I honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're here and that we've connected. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. I mean, just, I'm really happy to be here. You know, there's, there's a great, I think my main point of this whole thing is I want people to know how much they matter, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, and even that person who feels like they don't have any friends and, you know, their coworkers just diagnosed by cancer. You person who doesn't have any friends, you matter to that coworker mm-hmm. and just showing up with one simple phrase or bringing them a hot cup of coffee in the way they like it or finding out how to like it and bringing it to them. That little thing really does matter. It really, really does. And that's the sort of support that um, I hope that we all can give to those who are in crisis in the moment, um, because that's what makes us, I mean, that's what makes, that's what makes these horrible experiences bearable and doable and gets us to the others through, through, through the, through the thick of it. Yeah, that's, it's so true. And it's so powerful. So if anybody wants to connect, follow you, learn more, get your book, what's the best way for them to reach out? I'll have everything in the show notes, but where can they best connect with you? So the first thing is, if you want to know five phrases never to say to anybody with cancer or death or really anybody who's dealing with something serious and what to say instead and why not to say them, because I think it's really important that people learn why the, the why behind them, then you can go to 100actsoflove.com and that's the number 100. So 100actsoflove.com backslash what not to say, no spaces, no capitalization, 100actsoflove.com backslash what not to say. And then if you want to purchase the book, you can also go to 100actsoflove backslash 100actsoflove.com backslash shop, or you can also, it's also available on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and Instagram. I'm at 100actsoflove. And on LinkedIn, um, I am launching a new series of um, LinkedIn lives every Thursday. So I hope you come and join me. Feel free to ask your questions. I am on LinkedIn quite often. You can message me, ask questions. I'm happy happy to have a conversation. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here, Cam, and for sharing everything that you have. Honestly, I just, I, again, I'm so grateful. I have one more question for you Yes, and it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? I think it's, it's the faith I have in my own resilience, which I had to learn. And I learned it in two specific instances. One, when I had a conversation with my husband, it was three weeks before he died. And I said it was okay for him to go because I saw how hard he was working. I didn't ever think I'd be brave enough to have that conversation. I didn't ever think I'd, I mean, I was shaking, I was nervous. I didn't think I'd ever be able to do it and I did it. And then the next thing was, having the kids come into the hospital, say goodbye to their father and telling, giving them the news. And I honestly thought that would crush me. I didn't think that I would, I thought I, I really thought that I was going to die of a heart attack mm-hmm. and that the kids would be orphans because I didn't think I could do that. 
So I think the biggest lesson I have is about the resilience and how it's not a straight up, right? We kind of have this image of you hit the bottom and you bounce, right? It's this kind of like, I'm up, nope. I'm up, 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 yep, now I'm down. Nope. I'm up, 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 I'm done, you know? So yeah. I think it's, that those are the, that is the greatest lesson that I've learned. And I'm so grateful for it because no matter what the situation, no matter how difficult it seems to be, I feel like there's always going to be, I can get up somehow, some way with the help of my community, my friends, whatever it is. Um, so that's the lesson. That's a really good question. Mm, beautiful. Honestly, beautiful answer. And I love how you shared that because this piece, when I think of resilience, um, we tend to think of she has it or they don't. And it's, it's not, it's built, it's a muscle, it's built just like everything else, which means there's times where it's like, okay, I've got this. And it's other times it's like, oh my God, no, I don't No, I don't. And it's just, it's up and, and I think this is like, if for anybody listening, please know that's normal. That is very yes. normal, very normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You are doing it right. If that's the way it's going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it's this smooth and easy, like I, I, that actually scares me. If you think that's, yeah, we want this to be the case, but that's just not the case. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, thank you so much for being here today, Kim. It's honestly, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. It has been so great talking to you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you do and uh, you have some great questions. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.